it's difficult to put into words how glad I am to be back. I know that many of you have uh, expressed appreciation for the fact that we had a safe journey, and uh, I am truly thankful for that, and I'm also thankful to be back in a state that begins with the letter T and that it is Tennessee. And uh, I thought this morning after services um, how blessed of a congregation we really are. Uh, Brother Jamie preached a wonderful lesson this morning uh, with a response to the gospel message. Brother Tim taught my class, did a great job teaching about Elijah. We're a blessed congregation with a number of men who have the talent to be able to preach and teach God's word in such an effective way. And uh, not every congregation enjoys what we do. And uh, I want you to know how much I love and appreciate you as a group of God's people and for the privilege that I've been afforded to be able to work with you for so long. Two weeks ago, tonight, I preached on the subject of the errors that are being taught locally, and I talked specifically about women preachers. The congregation that I mentioned in that lesson was a congregation that not only has now begun to use women preachers, but they've also begun to use instrumental music in worship. And uh, to begin with, I would like to point out to you that one of the identifying marks that many people have noted about the Lord's Church is the fact that we use a cappella music. And uh, this is something that if you were to go into our community and you were to find people from various religious walks and ask them the question, what are some of the characteristics about the churches of Christ that you know? I would imagine there are some derogatory terms that would be made with regards to those who think they're going to heaven. But when you actually noted characteristics, many of them would say they don't have instruments in their worship. They partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. They have elders and they don't call their preacher reverend and they don't call him pastor. Uh, there would be a few characteristics. But this is one that historically our brethren have been known by in the modern age. The 21st century Christian publishes a book. For many years it was known as Where the Saints Meet. The title of it was changed a few years ago to The Churches of Christ in the USA. In the 2012 edition, they began to list churches of Christ that use instrumental music in their worship. They began to include them. Prior to that, they had excluded them because they did not believe that they represented our fellowship and the group of people that are trying to follow the biblical pattern. In fact, this past week, when we were gone, we stayed in the little town. It's a part of greater Fort Worth, Dallas area, but it was Richland Hills. That was the address of the hotel where we stayed. The largest church of Christ that is known in the world is the Richland Hills Church of Christ that meets there in Richland Hills, Texas. In 2007, they began to use instruments of music in their worship. In fact, uh, they made it very prominent that they were going to have a Saturday evening service where they served the Lord's Supper and had instrumental music. Uh, I checked their website twice this past week, and they do have instrumental services uh, on Sunday there, and they are listed 
and Churches of Christ in the USA. There are a number who don't want to be different from our religious neighbors. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be odd. And as we talked about the conditions a couple of weeks ago and some of the previous ones, there are a number of people who believe that what we need to do is to be like the nations round about us as the children of Israel were when they wanted a king. And I'm sad to say that some of our brethren have begun to say, whatever it takes to make people happy, that's what we will do. One of the statements has been made, and it's been emphasized strongly, that if we want to keep our young people, we're going to have to adapt the church to meet their culture. I remember hearing a lesson preached by Brother Gus Nichols. The title of it, and it's actually in print, is The Bible As It Is Adapted to Man As He Is. And his question in that lesson was, do we take the Bible and let it be the standard and whatever man needs to do to adapt to God's Word or do we take God's Word and do we try to adapt it to man and thus man becomes a standard? Well, I'd suggest to you that on this topic as well as a number of other topics, what men have attempted to do is to say our culture is not going to accept a narrow-minded, very closed system of worship and system of salvation. And that so what we're going to do is we're going to accommodate, we're going to use the market-driven approach, and we're going to try to be the church that people want us to be. Not understanding we must be the church that God wants us to be. I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to adapt some points that I've used in previous lessons. I'm going to try to make it a little more applicable to this situation. But we're going to begin talking about church music history. And I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but I do think you need to know about it. Number two, I want to talk about some confusion about church music. Do we really understand what God's Word teaches on this? And what do the world think about this? And then number three, some correct teachings on it. For just a moment, I want to talk about history. And let me emphasize as strongly as I possibly can that history does not determine our practice. Just because my mother and daddy did something or your mother and daddy did something or someone else's mother and daddy did something or our ancestors does not prove that that's what God will accept. You know, many times when I have Bible studies with folks, they'll say, well, are you saying my mother and my father that they're wrong? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm suggesting is the Bible is right. And if me or anyone else does not say what the Bible says, then they're wrong. Not because I say it, but because God's word is right. Romans chapter 3 says, let God be true and every man a liar. But it can explain why people do certain things and why people believe certain things. It can identify departures from the truth. When the history of this generation is written, the history of Warren County is written, what we do here in this congregation 
will stand as a testament to whether or not we were faithful to God and whether or not we were faithful to His Word. And it will judge our generation as to whether or not we would stand up and be a Foy Wallace Jr. who would say, this is what God says, and if you're doing anything different, then it is not acceptable. Let's talk about some of the reasons why people believe this. Some people really believe that the early church used instruments of music. However, if you study history, you will find out that that's certainly not the case. Brother Everett Ferguson wrote a book. It's available online. You can purchase it. And it's, because, it's about a cappella music in the early church. And Brother Ferguson traces the history of the usage of it and pointed out that it was not used. In fact, the first recorded incident was in 670 A.D., almost 700 years after the church, when Pope Galatian I brought it in, but he quickly had to take it out because it was so opposed. In fact, it was not again until 800 A.D. that it was brought in again, and it was met with a very strong protest. And in fact, Brother Ferguson in his book points out the fact that he roomed when he was at Harvard University with a man who was Greek Orthodox. And he asked him, he said, do you use instruments in your worship? And he says, no, we would not think of doing so because it is not taught in the New Testament. The Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, all of the, quote, Orthodox churches will still, even to this day, not use instruments of music in their worship. But let me fast forward if you'll remember, there were a number of people who sought to reform the Catholic Church. They saw the abuses that were going on. They saw indulgences being sold and people wanting to pay for sins before they committed them. And they said, this is nothing like what God intended in His Word. And so you had a number of people like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwigli, John Calvin, uh, others that rose up and said, this is wrong, we want to reform. Now, reformation was not the answer. Restoration was the answer. But when you start looking at these men, for instance, Martin Luther wrote, the organ in worship of God is an ensign of veil. In other words, he considered it to be as antagonistic toward worship correctly as was what Jezebel and Ahab introduced in 1 Kings. John Calvin, who was a Presbyterian, actually was the founder of the, this movement, said it, that is the organ, is no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of tapers, or the revival of other shadows of the law. The Roman Catholics borrowed it from the Jews. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, said, I have no objection to the organ in our chapels provided it is neither heard nor seen. Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, said, when asked why he did not use the organ in the worship, pointed to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. 
I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. He then said, I would as soon pray to God with machinery as I had to sing to God with machinery. Adam Clark, many of you perhaps own his commentary, was also a Methodist. And here's what he said, I am an old man and an old minister. And I declare here, or here declare, that I have never known instrumental music to be a productive of any good in the worship of God and have reason to believe that it has been the production of much evil. Music is a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of worship of the infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. When you go back to what is commonly referred to as the American Restoration Movement, which began in the late 1700s and even extended here into Warren County with the establishment of the old Philadelphia congregation, none of the early restorers use instrumental music in worship. In fact, it is only when you get to about 1859-1860 in Midway, Kentucky, that a melodeum was introduced into the worship there. And it was introduced with much protest and much division. From 1859 to 1860, a number of congregations wanted to do as congregations are wanting to do today, to be accepted. We want, to, we want to be like our religious neighbors round about us who have begun to start worshiping with the instrument. And because of that, there grows a group of people who were worshiping with the instrument and those who were not worshiping with the instrument. Generally, those who worship with the instrument also supported the missionary society. Those who worship without it would not support the missionary society. So that in 1906, when the U.S. Census was done and a religious census was also taken, the Churches of Christ and the Christian Church were listed separately so that there would be a distinction between those who would not participate with that. It has been and always will be a divisive issue. One of the things that um, I've mentioned to you, Brother Dave Miller, who's been here, wrote a book called The Richland Hills and Instrumental Music, A Plea to Reconsider. And what he does, he points out that in the sermon that Rich actually preached at Richland Hills, that he said, we've got to try to find some way for unity. Talked about unity. And yet, every time it's introduced, what does it bring? It brings division and brings difficulty. We have a preacher in our area who has said that he has, let me phrase it more accurately, he would not condemn the use of instrumental music. And uh, it's produced division in our local area. So it's always been a divisive issue. Well, many people are confused as to why we do not use instruments of music. I've spoken with people before and they would say, is the reason why you don't use them because you don't like instruments? And I tell them that has absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, if you want to ask my opinion, which is that's what it is, I like instruments. 
In fact, when I was in high school, I played in the band, the marching band even. I was in our choral group called the Glee Club at that time. I participated in college. I like instruments. I like the sound of them. But that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Other people believe that we only sing that way because we like a cappella better. And sometimes we have fostered that in our comments. Sometimes we've let the, the, the statement made before people as if, oh, that's such beautiful singing, and how could that be as nearly as good as someone who would play an instrument? That, again, is only expressing an opinion. And my opinion doesn't count. The only one that counts is God's opinion. And so it's neither I don't like it or I do like something else. And by the way, you may not know what the word acapella means. Today it's come to be synonymous with singing without a mechanical instrument. But many of those who sing and do that mimic the sound of instruments with their voice. But the word acapella means as in the style of the chapel. In other words, it's historically going back to, the, to describe the way worship was conducted in the chapel, which was just simply singing and not just making some sort of noise. Some people believe or think it's only a human tradition. Some people believe that we have developed our own traditions within our group of people. And that what we do is we have, in fact, it's almost become, like they say, a joke. You have two songs, a Bible reading, a prayer. In other words, you've got your own little order. And that we've just done it that way, and that's the way we're going to keep doing it, just because it's, it's a tradition. And many people have, and it's particularly a lot of young people have grown up thinking maybe that's just what it is. It's just our tradition, the way we do things. Many are confused as to why they think it might be acceptable. You know, when you start asking people and you start saying, why would you think that it would be okay with God? Well, some would say, well, what you've got to do is go back and look at the Old Testament. Look at what they did there. And when you point back to the Old Testament, I can point out to you that there were some things that were permitted at certain times in the Old Testament that later or under different conditions were not permitted. Let me give you some examples, if you will. Leaven. If I go to Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 11, No grain offering which you shall bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey, any offering to the Lord made by fire. Verse 17, It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as a portion of my offerings made by fire. It is holy like the sin offering, the trespass offering. Then chapter 23, verse 17, You shall bring from your dwellings two wave offerings of two tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. You mean in chapter 2 and chapter 6, verse 17, that you don't use leaven? In chapter 23, verse 17, you are to use leaven? Yes. Chapter 2 and chapter 6 are talking about offerings made by fire. 
different offering when he gets to chapter 23. Sometimes leaven was accepted, sometimes leaven was not accepted. Let me give you another example. Circumcision. In the Old Testament, you go to Exodus chapter 4, and Moses is going out. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. That's Moses. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet, saying, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Moses did not do what Moses was supposed to have done, and that is have his son circumcised. You see, that was a commandment of God given through Abraham. But yet, when I come to the New Testament, the Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, I say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. You mean there was a time when God demanded circumcision to the point where he almost killed Moses? Yes. Was there a time later when Paul says, if you're circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing? Yes. I can't just go back to the Old Testament and say, hey, I'm going to pull this. Because I may pull leaven out, and I'm not supposed to pull leaven out. I may go back and I say, well, I want to bring circumcision. Paul says, if you do, Christ will profit you nothing. Let me give you a third illustration, similar to the leaven one. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and that the people may drink. But when I get to Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, many years later, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. You know what Moses did? You go to chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with a rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their animals drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses in there, because you did not believe in me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Strike the rock. There at Mount Horeb. It's got what God commanded him to do. But later... He's told to speak to the rock, but what does he do? He strikes it, and God does not let Moses go into the promised land because of that. Some people say, well, how can that be such a big issue? The issue with God is, are you listening to him? Are you obeying him? Are you doing what he tells you to do? So I can't go back to the Old Testament and just indiscriminately start pulling things and bringing them forward into the New Testament worship. But someone says, oh, but you've got to understand, there's going to be instrumental music in heaven. Don't you know there's going to be people standing up there playing harps all in heaven? I want you to listen to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders found that, fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. 
Someone says, right there it is. They've all got harps. They've also got these big golden bowls full of incense to burn. But I want you to notice right after that comma, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, this is a figurative book. And John is explaining his figures. The harp, the incense, are not literal. They're represented, representative of the worship of the Christians that's going up or the prayers that are going up before God, but they're not literal. Notice chapter 14, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpers playing on their harps. Really? Did you hear that? Or was it like the voice of a loud thunder? Like this. There's a figure of speech called a simile where you make a comparison using like or as. Heaven's a spiritual place, not a physical place. And if you start trying to take literal, physical things here in this earth and try to say that's what's going to be in heaven, you're going to have a hard time with Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Some point to the home. And some would say, well, you know, I've got a piano in my house. I grew up, my grandmother had an organ in one room and a piano in the living room. And all of us grandkids were forbidden to touch either. She didn't want them out of tune. She didn't want us to break the bellows and the organ. But you see, what I do in the home is not parallel to what I can do in worship to God. For instance, there's many things that be acceptable at home, not in worship. I'm sure some of you over the past couple of weeks have had some cookies placed on the table. As long as you work that out between you and your doctor, that's fine. But when it comes to this table where we gather around to worship and partake of the emblems and remembrance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it would be sacrilegious and blasphemy to put cookies on that table. You see, you can't parallel the two. In fact, I'm sure that before it came time to eat, many of you mothers said, all right, everybody go in and wash up. And that's fine if you're doing that for hygiene's sake. I visited the hospital this afternoon. When I left, I took one of those little towelettes to wipe my hands. But now I don't do that in worship. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 7, verse 4, verses 8 and 9, condemned their making these things into the commandments and traditions of men. And he said in verse 4, When they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received in whole, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And he says, You've laid aside the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus said you've done, done it for a religious sake, and that's wrong. Some men don't understand the difference between an aid or an addition. 
in trying to prepare for this lesson, one of the things I did was to try to look up a number of places, and I found a Primitive Baptist website of all places. And this Primitive Baptist church argued the reason why one would not use instrumental music, they don't use it, was because that it would be an addition. And here's, I'm actually got it on the screen here. Not this one, but the one in front of me. The commandment, build the ark out of gopher wood. An aid would be a hammer or a saw. You're not changing what you're using. You're just simply a tool to facilitate it. But he pointed out, if you use poplar or oak, then you would have changed God's command. For instance, God's command to partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread. An aid would be a table upon which to put the bread. But to put meat on the plate would be an addition. The commandment to sing, songbooks, notes, you're not changing what you're doing. You're simply doing the same thing. And what he does, you take a lot of commands. If God gives you the command to be baptized, a baptistry is just an aid, not an addition. An aid does not change what is being done. Glasses aid you to see. Words in a songbook. But when you play, you do something in addition to or something which can be done by itself. You can play by yourself. And that makes it something in addition. But the, another part of the confusion, and the one which I would say probably is the primary reason why people are confused on this, and that is because they hear the words, the Bible doesn't say don't use an instrument. In fact, I've heard members of the church to say, but how do you deal with the fact that the Bible doesn't say don't do it? I think even little children understand that you have to get permission. You start to get that cookie. Mom and Daddy say, no, not unless I say you can. God's word is abundantly clear about authorizing permission, if you will. I can take you to a number of passages where the Bible warns against tampering. First Chronicles chapter 13, I used this a couple of weeks ago, where they carried the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. Uzzah reached out his hand and touched it. God struck him dead, verse 13 of chapter 15, because they did not consult him about the proper order. Or, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, 
God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and out of the things which are written in this book. God said you don't change it. You don't add something to it. You don't take something away from it. You do exactly what I ask of you. Second John 9, whosoever transgresses, here the American standards even a little more accurate, whosoever goes onward and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the gospel of Christ, or grace of Christ, to another gospel, a different gospel, which is not another. Only there are some who trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Very quickly, I realize I've run out of time. Let me talk for just a minute about the correct teachings. Music is important in our worship. Very important. Because it is a part of our worship that should reflect a grateful heart. James 5 verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms comes from a joyful heart. New Testament worship was simple. It involved singing. The passages in the New Testament talking about music offered to God are these. Acts 16 verse 25. But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. Ephesians 5 and verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And Hebrews 2.12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. That is the New Testament teaching on music and worship. Those verses that I have just presented to you. And there are several key concepts that come from those verses. Worship is with the people rather than a place. You take all of us out of this building and you move us into another location. Are we still the church of Christ at Bobby Branch? Absolutely. This building is not the church. And Jesus dealt with that with the woman at the well in John 4. She said, where are we going to worship? Our fathers say this mountain. The Jews say it's Jerusalem. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming which... And now is when the true worship shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, singing involves words, not just noise, not just sound. Words that engage the mind. When I sing, I'm supposed to be thinking about what I'm singing. They also teach and encourage to admonish one another. I can't do that with just sounds. To teach, I've got to have words. 
These things are done to and for one another. Well, I'd love to take a tangent right now and talk about the one another passages in the Bible. But they are reciprocal. That means it involves all of us in encouraging and singing. And the joy and the melody is made in the heart. A thankful heart that speaks to God. The instrumental music issue is really a Bible authority issue. And what may one do in religious matters? What we really have come to when we've looked at things such as women preachers, instrumental music, the Lord's Supper, on and on and on, it comes down to this basic issue is we can only do what God has authorized us to do. And one must always respect to God and come to Him on His terms. I cannot say, God, you will take whatever I give you. That would be disrespectful to you if someone were to do that to you. And it is certainly disrespectful to the God of heaven. Now, I realize this is not the type of lesson that generally causes people to say, I want to become a New Testament Christian. But it is a part of an obligation that I have before God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, preach the word, be urgent in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust." Be turned aside from the truth and turned to fables. You know, when Paul was writing Timothy, he was trying to persuade him to understand it's your role, Timothy, as one who preaches God's word to call attention to the fact that there are people leaving, deviating, straying from God's word. And we need to be the kind of people who calls people back and and says, okay, we want to do the right thing the way God wants it done and do it to please Him. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to obey the gospel. It may have been that you heard something in the lesson this morning, certainly a great lesson. It may have been that you heard something in your Bible class, or maybe your mother and your father have been talking to you about becoming a Christian, and you said, I need to do that. This is the first Lord's Day of the year. This is an opportunity to start this year off right. And if you're a Christian, you've been wallowing in sin. Now's the time to be restored. When we sing this song of encouragement, if you need to respond, would you do that while together we stand and sing?